Welcome back to Leads to Scale, a podcast from Social Media Week. I am your host, Toby Daniels. On this week's episode, we have Tanya Yuki, founder and chief executive officer at Shareably, a social intelligence platform. During our conversation, we discussed what inspired Tanya to leave her cushy gig at a big media company to start Shareably, how Shareably differentiates itself from the competition, how she is thinking about the role of AI in regards to automation, what emerging trends she is seeing in the data and analytics space, and much, much more. As always, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Leads to Scale on your favorite podcasting app. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Tanya. Thank you so much for joining. Excited to be here. Let's get into it. All right. Well, as we often like to do, we love to get as much background on our guests as we possibly can. So before we get into Shareably, which is obviously the company that you're running today, I'd love to get a little bit of background on you. So you're a native of Australia. Actually, I think you're Yes, you're definitely our first Australian that we've had on the show, so that's very <laughs> exciting. But uh, you're now living in New York, um, and I think it would be just super interesting to know like, what brought you here originally, and what were you doing uh, prior to founding Shareably? So, came out from my hometown of Sydney, Australia, about 12 years ago now, and uh, I was actually out for something completely wholeheartedly unrelated to uh, analytics. Uh, I was actually in feature films, so I came out to shoot something um, in New York, San Francisco and Chicago. Um, I'd never been to America before and it turned out and there's just like, there's a ton of people here doing stuff. Um, and where I come from, there's not a ton of people doing a lot of stuff, so it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty interesting and attractive and it became really clear to me that uh, whatever it was that I was trying to do back home in Australia, I should probably try and do here. Um, so I came out, um, began in film, evolved pretty quickly to digital media, um, and at the time sort of mobile video creation, and um, eventually evolved my way through to, uh, to running a social media analytics startup. I guess that's, uh, that's what happens when you're not paying attention to, to plotting out your career logically. Given that you were at a media company, a big media company, um, prior to starting Shareably, I, I imagine you know, that came with a sort of degree of security. Where did the instinct come from to kind of start out on your own and, and sort of you know, launch yourself into the entrepreneurial game? Well, first off, I think when you don't run a company, you look at the people running a company and you always have an opinion about how you might do it better. So probably, you know, one impulse was, gosh, if this were my show, here's how I would do it. Um, I was mostly in the product management function, so I was building products and developed a pretty strong opinion about how important I thought social media was. And uh, at the time I was at a company called Comscore that measured um, all of the web and all of the internet, um, but really wasn't set up to go on ahead and measure social. And it became just really clear to me that that was really where the future was going. Um, and that was the thing that marketers would need the most help with. Um, so I, I went and started it. And and so let, let's like I love to spend like a, a, a ton of time on that kind of sort of first year of operation because in many ways that's um, 
oftentimes the the hardest year the most challenging sort of period of time for an entrepreneur particularly like a first time you know entrepreneur starting out on their own so you know the idea came to you 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 felt there was an opportunity like really walk us through the kind of the, you know the first few weeks and months of, of getting shareably off the ground yeah so uh so the first idea for shareably so i think the the advice that i give to people looking back um at what you know what i think i did right was um, i dived right in and just iterated really quickly like i think you know, people can spend a lot of time trying to perfect the idea or perfect the pitch or get everything super prepared. Um, and then the second that makes contact with a prospect, it falls apart. So, you know, originally the, the first iteration of what Shareably now is, was actually a social media posting service for small businesses. Mm-hmm. So I went out and I got, you know, as many clients as I could, so like five or 10 pretty quick and then realized within a couple of weeks, this was just a horrid business that I had no business being in and mm-hmm. no qualification and no patience for. Um, but in that process, I went, oh gosh, it's actually really, really hard to keep track of what all of my writers are doing. It's really hard to know what to put out there. And I don't have any metrics with which to sort of guide people back strategically. So that was and then I went, well, okay, and I know a little bit about enterprise measurement and I know a little bit about analytics. Gosh, what if I went on ahead and built something that was helpful for the content creator? Um, so I think in going through that, you know, just dive right in, try it out, um, get clients, you know, get traction, you very quickly um, fill your days with what would otherwise be filled with sort of emptiness and panic and all the things that you do when you're sitting by yourself in your PJs trying to launch your business. Um, so I think that that kept us that kept me sane and it also um, helped me figure out really quickly what was good about what I was thinking about and what was crap um, so that I could let go of the stuff that didn't really have a future and sort of focus on the stuff that was most important. What, what was... Um so what was the 1.0 version of the product? Not, I don't mean sort of the, the, the initial kind of publishing tool, but the, the, the 1.0 version that's like most representative of, of what Shareably is today. And, and who, who were some of your first customers? Yeah, so the, the 1.0 version was literally um, me, you know, using really janky PHP code to pull data out of Facebook's API. Um, for like prospect meetings. So um, the first meeting that we had, which actually did go on ahead to be our first customer, um, was with The Economist magazine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the couple of days before I'm pulling all this post data, you know, assembling it into a CSV, trying to make slides out of it, um, and prepping this presentation, kind of pretending like it came out of a real tool, you know. Going, oh, these were some of the insights that I gleaned after I... Um, you know, went through our system and, and found this. And, um, and so the meeting went great. And, uh, you know, our, our soon to be client said, great, well, so when can we, when can we have the product? <laughs> I was sitting there going, oh man, I wasn't prepared for this. Were you, know, were, you, were you selling them on the idea of like, you know, a self-serve like dashboard sort of driven product? Yes, I products? was. Yeah, yes, I was, because that was what the business sure. was. So, you know, so I kind of went, oh, well, you know, we're, we're really busy doing uh, implementations right now. What about, you know, a, a date that was about five weeks from when the meeting was? So, you know, they cringed a little and said, okay, well, we can wait that long so we can go through there. And, uh, you know, and then just started cranking because, you know, the, the, the biggest thing was going, is this data useful? Is it interesting? Does someone actually want to pay money for it? 
Um, and the second they did then, you know, I was already talking to different engineers to start the build, um, but I had sort of enough proof that there was a legit reason to spend five weeks on an MVP that would actually function. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that kind of pushed us into, into go mode really quickly. But, um, you know, in the lead up to that, it was really just, you know, the, the, there's always the, the temptation when you're building a business or you're coming up with an idea to go, oh, can I, can you meet with me? And I want to tell you about this company that I'm thinking about. And I've got these ideas and those meetings don't result in sales because you're so wishy-washy um, about your idea and you're sort of asking for acceptance. And pretty quickly I switched into the products built, here's what we have, do you want it? And immediately you could see yes, no, you know, as opposed to going, oh, at some point in the future when I'm ready, I'm going to come back. That that doesn't give you any real read as to whether someone will pay for it. It's interesting. I was interviewing um, Josh Nackis, who's the the president and co-founder of Simon Data, on the podcast a, a few months ago, and, and he said something really interesting about kind of scaling um, his business, which is a, an enterprise SaaS business. And he said, you you know, they're three or four years into it, I suppose now, and and you know they're they're doing sort of you know large sort of seven figure deals. Um, and he said, like you know, when you're scaling and you're you know, onboarding all of these new customers over time, it's really important that the most recent deal, the most recent customer that you've onboarded, feels like the first customer in the sense that there's like a little bit of um, fear mm. around your ability to deliver on the promise of what you are selling, right? And in other words, there is a there is a natural like gap between where the products at and the service you provide and what the client needs. But it's the only way that you can kind of keep moving forward. It's the only way that your product's gonna get better is that it always feels like a little bit of a stretch. Does, does that resonate with you? It resonates with me. I don't know if it will resonate with our CTO. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're right, it's, you know, particularly in a space like social media. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's kind of a big difference when you're building products in a space like ours versus um, you know, what you might have done, you know, when you're with a company like Comscore and you're building products for the web. You know, the the pace with which platforms become the most important thing to marketers and then the next day they just get dead and they're gone. You know, it's, I was reflecting at the start of last year, you know, not that long ago, I was sitting around with my product team going, how come we're not measuring Vine? When are we going to do it? And everyone laughs like that's hilarious because Vine doesn't exist anymore. But at the time it was like a really... Um, highly requested feature. So, you know, I think you do have to be aggressive about selling in ideas in advance of when you've built it. Because if you're waiting until you've had a chance to be thoughtful and print it out and look at it and meditate on it, it's like the opportunity's dead mm. and someone's already gone ahead and, and met that need. Um, and it's always a balance, right? Because you also don't want to completely destroy um, your entire sort of tech and engineering team because you're always pushing them in different directions. Um, but I think it is a mistake to be too wedded to what's worked for you in the past because needs and wants and desires are just changing so much faster than, than really any other type of media that I've ever seen. So you started in 2013, six years ago, I suppose, yep. we're talking about right now. So, what, you know, describe Shareably today, like, you know, wh- what is it? Um, who are the customers that you're ser- uh, serving? And, you know, lift up the hood and, and sort of describe the product for us. So Shareably right now, I think, sits at, a, as an, at an interesting point because we've, we've always been known for, you know, I think, 
quality data and comprehensive measurement and counting, you know, what I like to call sort of the how many stuff, right? Who topped this ranking? Um, you know, who was the best performer on Instagram? Who got the most shares on Facebook? Yada, yada, yada. And, and the reason why we've been able to do that um, is because unlike anyone else in our space, we went and meticulously built this dictionary of stuff to go get. Um, so we've always been self-sufficient in terms of what that measurement ecosystem looks like. Um, but I think right now the, the big shift for us and what the eye of, of the storm is for us is really coming back and proving the effectiveness of social. Um, you know, attribution is the big buzzword out there, but you know, every publisher that we work with and sort of media publishing and sports is probably about 50% of our business today. Um, so the big TV networks, the publications and, and many of the sports leagues, and they're really going, you know what, you know, we need to turn our social media savvy into dollars um, by actually monetizing the content that we're pushing out there and taking what we've learned about what a good social video looks like and partnering with advertisers who have not built those capabilities. Um, and that's been great. You know, there was, I guess there was that official launch of branded content in 2016 um, with Facebook, but now it's a legit revenue stream. And advertisers are no longer willing to take a report that says you got 2 million views and 100,000 clicks and this many shares and it was really good. Um, there's real pressure to go, what did that do for my brand? How did this change hearts and minds and ultimately wallets? So what we're focusing on now is really helping tell that story um, because the bragging rights metrics, I think, still get you in the door. But whether you actually get the big deals um, comes down to whether what you're doing moves the needle. Um, so so that's a big, you know, that's a big transformation for us. because what, what does that look like for you on the product side? I mean, how, how does your product have to kind of shift? in accordance to you know what presumably like the CMOs and other senior level marketers are, are essentially demanding in terms of like better quality metrics? Yeah, th there's two things. So one is, you know, we've always focused on audience metrics rather than sort of total vanity metrics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it isn't just about your fans <coughs> and followers, it's about the number of unique people who are actually activated because unique people who do stuff are the same people who buy. Um, but the second is pushing, you know, new suites of products around advertising effectiveness. Um, and it is different, right? Because a lot of the times people will go, well, you know, I don't care about how many shares you got. I need to prove the value. And you're like, actually, you prefer both, right? It's would you prefer your left arm or your right leg? Like both are good for the things that they're good at. Um, so it's less about, I think, changing the core product. And it's more about making sure that we're shipping enough new stuff that meets the needs of tying to ROI, um, going deeper into advertising effectiveness and attribution. And you can still count and you can still, you know, fill your RFPs with our data. You can still put out press releases that prove that you're number one. Um, but now we really want to be known as the company that can also prove the impact and the value. I mean, that that's definitely speaks to um, what I think is a, a, a a significant kind of challenge that businesses like yours face today in the marketplace which is there is obviously a lot of competition and and you know on the surface of how you communicate your core value proposition it's it's hard I imagine to appear particularly differentiated from some of the other companies out there who may describe themselves uh, in similar ways so how do you differentiate? How do you how do you address that particular challenge? 
I think the biggest evolution, you know, for me as the founder CEO is that, you know, when we first went to market, the desire was to reach everyone and to be appealing to everyone, right? So, you know, and you'll see, and it's something that, you know, you'll see from us in, in the coming weeks, months and, and years, you know, we went from trying to be sort of the everything social media measurement store. Um, you know, hey, you don't you don't like data? We have a report for you. Hey, you are you know an A plus double you know everything data lover. We've got something for you too, and everything in between. Um, and the reality is, like, we're really there for the people who implicitly believe that data is important and should be at the heart of your practice, and for anyone who maybe doesn't entirely believe that to be true but is open to it and really curious about how to use data to transform their business. So I, I think it's less about thinking about how we differentiate from others and more about really committing much more deeply in our messaging, in the materials that we put out there, who we're for and what we're about so that the people who go, of course that's right, are drawn to you and the people who go, of course that's wrong, you know, don't waste their time with you and we don't waste our time sort of marketing with them. Um, and that's been a big, it's been a big transformation in terms of how we recruit talent, you know, because you'll find people who love social media, but if you don't love data, you're going to have a horrible time working for us, right? Because like, that's what we do, you know, if data is not interesting, if it doesn't make you want to learn more or find out the reasons why, you're just not going to have a fun time working for a data company. And same thing for a client, you know, it's it's like the gym membership that gets gifted to you at Christmas and you never wanted to work out and a year from now, you're not going to renew it and you're going to go, eh, gym wasn't so good. And the reality is you never showed up, you never put in the work because you didn't want to. Um, and data and analytics is much more like that and it's much less like magic. Um, and I think, you know, that's important to us to really center on what you know who we serve what we do and why it's important um, and draw people to us you know with that as opposed to spending all your time playing that sort of back and forth tennis game of you know our charts are better than theirs you know we've got a better ui our buttons look better i mean these are horrible reasons to win business but if you're trying to be everything to everyone it comes down to does someone like the look of your charts better or not mm -hmm. and that really comes down to what they had for lunch do, do you think that there has been a, a sort of backlash against data just in in general over the course of the last year or so particularly in terms of sort of you know marketers starting to feel a little bit overwhelmed so i don't think there's been a backlash against data i think that I think that initially there was a big move towards, you know, big data, AI, machine learning, and, and no one really knew what that meant, but it kind of sounded cool. So people invested in tools and they brought in data scientists and no one really knew what they were meant to do, but, you know, they, they felt that it was important. And I think it turns out that doesn't solve your problems. Um, so, so I think, you know, every time I hear someone say, you know, I'm, I'm drowning in data and starving for insights, I almost always go, well, were you asking clear questions of the data or were you just hoping that the data would show up and answer all your problems? You know, and, and it doesn't, you know, it, it's a tool just like anything else. Um, but I think certainly, you know, there's a lot more of a focus, you know, now with 
Uh, you know, when I, when I think about last year, I don't really think about data overwhelm. I think about Cambridge Analytica, which, you know, I think um, helped a lot of people lose their innocence when it comes to how to use audience data. So certainly I think there's much more of a focus on methodology. There's much more caution. Um, and there's far fewer people who don't care about the ingredients of what they're using anymore. And I think that's a good thing. Um, because you know you you know what's in the food that you put into your body, you should probably know what's in the data that you're using to drive your company to. So, so the the worst customers are the, are the ones that turn up hoping that data is going to be a silver bullet solution. What what does the best customer look like in in terms of is is there a profile of company or brand or, or shareably customer that that you can now sort of recognize in, in potential new customers as they come to the conversation looking and functioning uh, strategically in a particular way that gives you a sense of like yeah these, these guys know what they're doing yeah there, there are two profiles of customer that I get truly excited about um, number one are the people who are just better than you at data right and and they're really they're coming to you because they recognize that they need research and insights and intelligence, and they just want to figure out, do you have what they need and is it the best solution out there? Um, and that's a very fact-based process, and they will do things with our data that we never even thought of. Um, like we're you know, having one of our first um, big client gatherings, uh, like in, in conference format later this year, and like for those people, I want to put together a data creativity award, because I sometimes see the work that our clients do, and I was like, our own team hasn't thought of that. That's amazing. So that's that's kind of profile number one. Um, but profile number two, which is a, a much bigger segment, um, and, and oftentimes the segment that's able to make the most impact in their organizations, um, are the people who come to a partnership truly wanting to make business decisions off of what we have to provide. Um, you know, my biggest anxiety when you create research or analytics is that it will be interesting but no one will do anything about it or it'll be forwarded along and no one will really look at it or it'll be a great tool and no one will really log in or make changes or the people who know how to make change won't be persuasive enough in their organization to make that change happen so i always look for the people who are desperate to make decisions using this information who know that it's not a silver bullet but know that it can give them more confidence to be bold and to be brave um, that's really what I'm looking for. And I feel like the market that we're in right now requires a kind of fearlessness, you know, and it's, it's ironic because you go, when things get scary, you know, everyone wants to do the defensive crouch, but the reality is that's the time when people need to be the bravest. Um, so looking for the people who have that courage and that desire to, to, you know, have things be better and to make their companies better are really sort of the, the cultural DNA that we're looking for. So tell me about the uh, the 100 index. Well, so uh, so that's in our power rankings, and uh, at, look, and we, it's been one of the most uh, heavily used products since we launched uh, in uh, in 2017. And what it really is, so you know, don't you hate it when um, you can't, you know, you want to know how you're stacking up against another company holistically, right? You can compare one TV show with another TV show or this magazine against another magazine. But many of these companies have so many brands and so many things out there um, pushing for audience attention. So we wanted to actually go on ahead and look at the aggregate 
um, impact of what was happening at a corporate level. So the Media 100 Index, um, so there's actually way more than 100 companies in there, but we figured 100 was really enough for the marketplace to look and see who was making a difference, uh, was our answer to the question of who's really uh, driving impact and who's making the most engaging content across social media. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, and it's, it's really interesting because you'll sometimes get, you know, notes from companies that, um, you know, maybe are 105 or 106, or I think you forgot us, you know, and, and you always check because maybe we did. But, um, but yeah, over time, we found that it's just a really great way to reward the people that are doing a, a great job in aggregate across their whole companies. Uh, last year, you made it onto the Inc. 5000 list. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, this is a list of uh, some of the fastest growing independently owned companies in the US. What, what did it mean for you just as an entrepreneur six years in? What did it mean to, to you to get on that list? And you know, what sort of impact has it had on the business? I, I think as an entrepreneur, one of the biggest traps is you get into the trap of like doing, right? You're in go mode. Um, and you know you're fighting fighting really hard to achieve something and the second that you achieve it you move on to whatever's next because you you do that so I think uh, you know getting onto that list was important because you go okay well you know we, we've actually we've actually built something that at a you know at a national scale you know it is sort of called out as as a company that's that's doing great things and that that's important I think it's great for the team because again, if you're, you know, if you're managing an account or if you're running analytics, you've got no idea if your company is doing well. Like, not really. You know, you know if you've got um, creative, salty snacks and a good snack haul, and you assume that that correlates with um, a healthy business. But how would you know? So I think it's really encouraging for the team that's, you know, putting in all of that extra work to know that they're working for a company that's. Um, that's crushing it on a national level. Um, but yeah, it's good. It's just a reminder to to celebrate what you've built and to enjoy the ride and not just uh, not just to be so results oriented and focused on achievement after achievement and and to move right on. So g given the tra trajectory that you've been on, the the time frame that you've been running the company, um, I imagine, much like the rest of us, you've seen the industry shift significantly over that period. How would you, like, particularly when you re reflect on the weirdness of 2018, how would you describe where we are at as an industry today? And, and what do you see as some of the major challenges that we're facing? I think that this is probably, uh, firstly, I'm incredibly optimistic about 2019. I think that 2018 was a necessary year for people to really sit up, pay attention, um, understand that you know with with something that can be as powerful as social there's also the responsibility of how to do it right um, you know I think that up until 2018 there was a sense of oh it's still sort of an experimentation mode and we can really anything goes I think it was like the first year where legit people sat up and went oh you know now we really need to pay attention do things right the same way we do elsewhere in our business um, and that makes me incredibly optimistic because you know the sorts of it, consumer engagement always leads anything else and you know consumer engagement around formats like video and branded content you know are still growing like double triple digits year over year so the enthusiasm is there you know we haven't seen a pullback based on what happened last year and I think marketers now are really approaching social media um, in a much more scientific way you know I think they're 
paying much more attention and looking beyond big vanity metrics that just used to be enough um, as not being enough anymore and really needing to tie um, results back to the business and that in turn is causing more dollars to flow into this space because we've proven that we can actually spend responsibly and get results that matter. Um, so I think I think that makes this year incredibly exciting. I think it puts pressure on companies like ours to innovate very fast. Um, you know, we need new solutions because that marketer who's looking at social with those eyes is just really different to the one who wanted big fan counts and you know big puffy numbers that they could feel good about. Um, so you know, so that's that's all also exciting for us because I think you get into this really symbiotic push-pull relationship with clients where they're always going to be um, pushing us to go faster and you know and we sort of have to make a call across a spectrum of important stuff. We interrupt this week's episode of Leads to Scale to share an update in regards to our forthcoming conference in London. The 10th annual edition of Social Media Week London, Europe's premier conference for media and marketing professionals is taking place at the QE2 Conference Center in Westminster between October 31st and November 1st. This year's event will continue the 2019 global theme stories with great influence comes great responsibility, a conversation that will explore how social media has become the most influential story platform in the world that has the power to both unite and divide us. Check out our first wave of speakers and secure your pass by visiting socialmediaweek.org forward slash London. And don't forget to use the code leads number two scale at the checkout to save an additional 10% off your pass. All right, let's get back to the show. Something I wrestle with a lot is where it's, it's mostly through sort of the conversations that we have with our sort of most important stakeholders. And that is where does social media fit into the kind of broader marketing mix? Um, is it something that just is a category of, of itself um, in that, you know, when, when marketers are thinking about spend and thinking about strategy and thinking about um, the, 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 the different channels through which they can kind of communicate and engage customers, social media is just like one component part of that with like, you know, email being another part of that and SEO and SEM being another part and even like things like out of home. Mm. Um, or, or do you see it differently? I'm always curious to get this because I never seem to get like the, the same, same answer. answer. <laughs> well, I get, you know, it, it depends for brands, the different brands, right? But, um, you know, I think I take my lead from the brands that I think are incredibly exciting and a lot of those are the direct to consumer socially led brands. Um, I was just in uh, in the UK last week and spent some time with um, the retailer Pretty Little Thing which is you know one of the fastest growing retailers um, in the UK and now even in the US. and. You know, almost everything that they do is socially led. They work uh, with influencers, um, you know, as one of their primary marketing channels. And there's really no differentiation between what constitutes brand building and what constitutes selling. Like it's all sort of smushed together. 
And I think a lot of traditional marketing struggles to differentiate sort of top funnel brand building that's long term and then bottom funnel funnel selling, which is short term. And what a lot of the direct to consumer brands have gotten really right is this concept that the two things are really one. Um, so, you know, so, so if you take your cue from a lot of these brands that are crushing it in terms of sales and also crushing it on social, um, you know, it's my argument that, you know, I think social should be at least one of the primary ways that you're learning your customers quickly and iterating um, around what they care about. Um, but, you know, for more traditional brands, I think at a minimum, it should both be a channel like online video or like your website, but also a place to learn more about who you should be talking to. Because the data, even though it's collected, you know, about what people do on social is really reflective of what they care about in the real world. And I think that could inform a cross-channel strategy in a much more holistic way, as opposed to going, I'm gonna use the social data that I've collected on social to talk about social people and what they do on social media. You know, it, it's just not, for the consumer, they don't really care. You know, they're just one person um, being exposed on multiple channels. How do you keep pace with change? I mean, you mentioned like, you know, having to jump in on Vine and figure out kind of like the analytics piece around Vine when, when that was around, of course, that shut down. Um, there are new platforms emerging all the time. Obviously, everybody is jumping on TikTok right mm -hmm. now and trying to sort of figure out that. And you know, equally, there are sort of you know certain platforms and products and tools that are dying and and that you know, will will no longer be around in in a year or so time. So, how do you keep pace? Um, and, and you know, are you concerned with like the new and the latest and and the the most shiny um, uh, new sort of social media objects out there? Um, or or do you, are you sort of more grounded in that? You just focus on the kind of big players? Look, I'd love to say that I was more grounded. And if you talked to me two years ago, I probably would have said so. But um, I've just been proven wrong on that. Like, you know, take something like Instagram stories, uh, which just overnight became transformative, you know, in terms of how consumers um, spend their time on, on Instagram. So, you know, for where we are now, we look at the cost benefit where you go, what is the potential... Um, cost of building quickly, even if it turns out to be nothing, versus um, what's the cost of not building quickly, and then if it turns out to be something really big, now you're scrambling and now you're in catch-up mode. Um, you know, a couple years ago, I would have been much slower and I would have said follow the money and allow something to evolve. Um, but now, you know, we've got great engineers and, you know, we, we're really making a proactive decision to say, you know, we have to ship stuff fast. And, and just accept that a couple of our bets will just be wrong and they won't play out, but we'll have built and we'll have enough there so that our clients can get a read. And it's never perfect. You know, if you look at something like, um, you know, Instagram stories are measurable, IGTV, not yet, right? But the second it's measurable, you have to be there. Um, and I think it's, it's too hard to form a preemptive opinion about what will and won't be important. Um, because stuff just, again, it doesn't move in months and quarters and years. It moves in seconds, um, you know, and no one's smart enough to preemptively know, you know, no one knew that Musical.ly was going to become there. And if you'd built on Musical.ly, that it was going to get shut down and, you know, relaunched inside of TikTok post-acquisition. Like, you just can't know this sort of stuff. So you just kind of have to ship. Right. All right, I think that's a, a great way of looking at it. And, wh and what about AI? I mean, obviously, you know, a, another one of these like 
hot topics that no one really fully understands or appreciates but um it's a huge focus of ours as we um think about you know programming our 2019 and 2020 conferences where does ai sort of fit in um to what you're doing how you're serving supporting your customers and and how obviously your product is evolving yeah uh it's definitely something that you can't ignore A, a big part so there are portions of our current data set um, which we don't really talk about in terms of um, AI and, and predictive analytics, but are fueled by that um, because you know the way that social works is some stuff is gettable um, in totality and lots of stuff needs to be projected and, and sort of forecast in that way. So that's always been a big part of our practice area. Um, but over time, you know, when you think about uh, the volume of content that we collect and all the results that we have, Um, AI is a critical part of helping marketers become more predictive on the sorts of things that are going to work, when they should be pushing it out there, you know, what should and shouldn't get paid support. Um, All of that stuff is done largely by humans today. Um, You know, and, and humans, like, we can't help but relate something to our own personal experience, which makes us intrinsically sucky at predicting performance we just assume that everyone is like us you know and and it's just something that can be done a lot better with with this sort of process so that's a big part of a lot of the products that we're innovating around is taking what we already know with current and historical data and using that to train um, better and smarter models that that can help marketers predict the future so let's talk about um, influencer marketing. Um, uh, I think I'm right in saying that your platform um, currently tracks and measures about a million companies and about 10 million um, influencers around the world. Obviously, that is a, a fairly kind of like just astonishing number. And, and much like social media in general, it's been a really interesting kind of past year, I think, for the influencer marketing space. Uh, it's It certainly feels like it's going through some sort of growing pains, probably not helped um, by just the sheer amount of like media attention that influencers are, are now receiving and of course the sort of twin fire festival movies that came out probably didn't didn't help at least in terms of like the public perception around influencer marketing but but of course it's here to stay and there's no point arguing about whether it's faddish or whether there's going to be a decline in um, influencer marketing because I think that would just um, uh, that would that would just look past um, the the fundamentals of what's happening and why it exists and why it's important and where it is potentially sort of like heading in the future. So, you know, t- t- talk to us about like how you see the influencer marketing space today, how you see it kind of evolving and, and maturing, um, and and from Sherry's perspective, like what what role does data play in 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 you know supporting what is essentially a very new and nascent area. So the influencer marketing space is fascinating to me because only when I started to see the data did I become a believer. Because initially I, you know, I was sort of, I guess, with the masses of is this a real thing, you know, is this scalable, will this work? And so now we track 10 million influencers or creators every day. But before that we tracked maybe around 40, 100,000 or so. And I remember an analysis that we ran early on, about two years ago, where we compared the engagement created by those 
40,000 um, influencers with the engagement created by every brand, every publication, every sports league, every viral video creator in the United States. Um, and influencers generated about five times more activity than every single brand. What do you um, mean by America. activity? Uh, engagement, so shares, comments, retweets, etc. And it was so stark that when I saw this report, I was like, guys, did you QA this? Did you check this? Like, please go and rerun this. I hope you don't think I'm an idiot because you clearly think I'm an idiot because you just gave me this report. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so they went back you know, and checked it. Turns out, you know, I was the idiot because I was wrong. Um, but it was so stunning to me that the um, scale with which humans relate to other humans on social media, and it shouldn't be surprising because obviously people trust people. Um, but, you know, we've, we've, dived into a lot of research here um, you know we partnered on something with uh, with full screen about a year ago that sought to understand how consumers perceive um, selling type messages from different types of influencers so macro celebrity micro influencer um, and really like the results were were very clear you know trust was so much higher for every type of influencer than it was for brands direct and you know, trust was high across each influencer type, but in terms of the influencers who could actually make me wanna buy something or try something, um, many of the macro influencers were more compelling. And it wasn't that the micros were not trustworthy, they were, but sometimes the person who you relate to, like the person next door, is actually too much like the person next door for you to wanna do what they do. Doesn't feel particularly like aspirational. Exactly, that's exactly right. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm a huge believer in, in the influencer space. I think that, you know, as a community, as a world, we're in a massively low trust environment. You know, we don't know what to do about the media, we don't know what to do about government, we don't know what to do about loads of things. Um, but we still trust what other people have to say even if it's being brand funded and that was a big surprise to me um so i think you know the reason why we went really aggressively into this space and um, in a couple of weeks you'll see a big announcement um, from us about um, a new discovery product that we're launching was like we're not in the game of making money depending on which influencer you pick we just want to be a neutral third party that helps you um, you know, see the metrics for each influencer in a transparent and, you know, and objective way and then make the right decision for your brand. Um, and that was the thing that our clients were really crying out for was like, gosh, if I partner with this influencer agency or with this network, are they just going to recommend the people they've got a relationship with? And is this really the best person for us? Um, so, you know, we wanted to really help both sides have a clear way of understanding what the selection criteria was, um, you know, what were the metrics looking like and how could you get past the sort of veneer of does this, you know, do I love this image? Um, you know, that's like, that's almost the last question you should ask. Up front, you want to screen out all the other stuff that doesn't fit and then get to the which one do I feel the most excited about. So, um I've talked to obviously a lot of people recently, um, partly through the podcast and just just through Social Media Week in general, about kind of the state of social media today. And w one of the really consistent things that uh, I'm hearing is that, um, and, and this relates in part, I think, to what you were just talking about in the influencer marketing space, but t talks also just more broadly about the state of social in general. 
but um, a, a lot of people have sort of touched on on this sort of this this issue that um, there are obviously incredible benefits to social media and some stunning and beautiful and hugely in, inspiring examples of, of how it's been used um, but unfortunately it also seems to bring the worst out in people um, and and combined with the fact that the many technology companies and I'm not just talking about the social media platforms but I'm talking about those that have designed the the hardware technology that we now have this like almost unbreakable relationship with um, have designed them very in a very particular way so that the more we use them the more we want to use them it's true of the devices it's true of the software that runs on the devices mm. and of course that makes sense it's good business um, however, it seems to, to be impacting us in, in really negative ways and, and not only is it impacting potentially our mental health but it's also bringing out the, the worst characteristics in who we are as human beings. Um, is this something that like concerns you in, in your business? Is this something that you spend time thinking about? I mean, if not, what, what keeps Tanya up at night? So. Uh you know, like alcohol, right? Um, many of these devices or platforms m make us more of who we are, you know? And, and I think there's a certain, um, you know, th there's a certain drug-like nature to the instant feedback of, I've done something, do other people approve? You know, what does this look like? Um, but most of the behaviors are not new. I think the speed with which um, you can get that sort of gratification and that feedback. Uh, I mean, look, there's no doubt it's changing how we communicate as a society. It's shifting attention spans. Um, you know, I, I even find with myself, like I'm, I'm a big reader. I love books. Um, but I was sitting down to read like a, a great fiction novel and I, I really struggled to have the patience to to go through it all so I think you know for sure there's stuff to do with brain plasticity that's you know that's being altered um, you know for me I think one of the my biggest concerns and one of the hottest topics for me is around um, people understanding not so much how they're they're changing um, you know their behavior in that way but I guess you know maybe because it impacts our company too is just levels of awareness around um, data and privacy um, you know, and I'm I'm not one to sort of you know I, I I believe that much more education needs to happen with the consumer because I think when you know there was uh, stuff happening with Cambridge Analytica last year and there was a lot of people very alarmed about the fact that anything that they were doing on the internet or on social media was sort of being used to inform profiling about them. So that was a big eye-opener for me because I'm in this space and I just assumed everyone knew. Um, so I think, you know, more needs to be done to raise awareness on what you're revealing about yourself and what's acceptable and what's creepy. Um, but no, I mean, look, I think that you know, any conversation about the negatives of social needs to be sort of calibrated with the positives, which is, you know, I stay in touch with people that I went to high school with that I would just never have seen for the rest of my life, you know, and I can by proxy watch them, watch their kids grow up and, you know, and bump into them in the street randomly when I'm back in Australia and have a sense of where their lives are. And I think there's some really wonderful stuff there. 
Um, but a lot of it, you know, particularly when it comes down to the negative impacts, I think really gets pushed back to parenting and how you calibrate, you know, how much time your kids spend with it and at what age, um, you know, at what age it's it's acceptable. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a parent, so I don't know that I'm winning any Parent of the Year awards right now, but I think that's that's something that as a society we need to think a lot about um, so that, you know, so that we set the right models early and so that people, you know, understand that a lot of what's being put out there is put out there permanently. Because um, I think that's something that, you know, I, I look back at the notes that I passed when I was 10 or 11 and I, I don't think I would want them to be sitting on some website somewhere for people to read. Well, that that's what's so interesting. I mean, there's so much of what you were just talking about that I'd love to kind of dig into. So, and I want to come back to the alcohol analogy because I have one of my own as well. But the the, the this space is so new. I mean, we're really only talking about 10 years since like, you know, the, the launch of the, the smartphone, which right. was like such a huge accelerator for, for behavioral change. And, you know, over a 10 year period, what we've seen is mass adoption. We've seen extraordinary growth in terms of the number of people that are now on social media and that have access to smartphones. But at the same time, absolutely no established social norms around what is good or bad behavior or no right. social norms around um, how to behave ethically or responsibly, you know, um, uh, you know, in, in this particular kind of new medium. And so the lack of social norms, I think, definitely points to a major problem, but it also points to the opportunity uh, in terms of like, uh, how do we uh, how do we address this going forward? And, and what I love to do is to think about, okay, well, where do we have established social norms that have been around for a long time that, that when you think about it, it just seems so obvious, obvious that you right. wouldn't get up in the morning and have a glass of wine. <laughs> Why? Because drinking alcohol in moderation is good for you. And we understand that. It's been an established social norm for quite a long time. Right. Um, a glass of wine with dinner. Sure, Perfectly no problem. Acceptable, Perfectly yeah. acceptable. And so we 17, have to... like maybe you have a problem. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and there is an age, you know, a, a legal age at which you can buy alcohol. There's a legal age um, that, that, that there is an age at which it's socially acceptable to, to, to drink alcohol. Um, these are all kind of basic social norms that are partly established by governments and partly established just by kind of society in general. And we don't have those yeah. in social media. So I like the alcohol analogy because I think that we have to think about this thing that if you consume too much of it is bad for you but if you consume it in moderation it's fine and that's where we're at right now we've got a whole bunch of drunk people out there consuming too much social media <laughs> having a glass of wine as soon as they go up in the morning and really with no idea that that's actually not necessarily a good thing i, I think that's right and i think and i think it it swings back you know it's um it's it's so early and you know and and we have seen so many of those negative negative sort of uh, behaviors but again you know you've also seen a lot of things that i think are very transformative for society i think the ability to communicate and all of this is you know is so new or you know some of the new innovations around facebook portal and, and other sorts of tools that i think are just scratching the surface of where we're going to be a couple years from now um, but uh, but again, I think it's too easy to get mad at the thing and not to think reflectively about what it's actually revealing about humanity and how we can sort of tackle that rather than 
you know, the box that it showed up in. Definitely. I mean, our theme this year is stories with great influence comes great responsibility. And it, and it, it's, it's designed to kind of speak to not just the sort of media publisher or the, the macro influencer or, or even the brand. It's also designed to speak to individuals who have a responsibility in terms of like their relationship with social media and also in terms of what they put out into the world. Just because, if, just because you have um, only one follower doesn't necessarily mean that what you put out to that one follower should somehow be inauthentic or somehow not a, a proper representation of who you are or that it, it can somehow be um, deliberately like divisive or toxic or whatever. Like you, you've got to understand that it impacts and affects people in, in really significant ways. And that's that's also something that I think that we have to kind of come to terms with and understand and recognize that that, that responsibility is, is just a very serious thing. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think it's something that, you know, the online community is getting better at. But, you know, to use your example, if you wouldn't wake up and have a glass of wine necessarily, you know, you also wouldn't look at someone in the street and, and go, oh, you look ugly, right? But you might post a comment like that against a picture on social. And it's and I think, again, as a society, we, we have these norms for civilised society that we've evolved, you know, uh, on threat of whatever it is that gets you um, sort of removed from, you know, from society way back when, but we haven't developed those yet, um, you know, in online communities and particularly on social. And I think, I think that will come. And I think it again comes down to everyone holding themselves to a higher standard and, and acting like a community in that way. Well, Tony, we're out of time. You are amazing. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Where can people find more information about you if they want to uh, do a little bit of online research, but also where can they find information about Shareably? Absolutely. So, uh, so the best place to start is on um, Shareably's site, so um, shareably.com. Uh, that also links to all of our social media on Facebook and, and particularly on Instagram and YouTube. And, uh, and all of my sites will link off from there, um, tanyayuki.com where I uh, also put all of my uh, rallying cries around what people need to know about analytics and how to approach measurements. So if you want that information or to use it as a sleeping aid, you can do it for either reason. <laughs> well, Shareably, I, I know, and you, Tanya, put some great content out into the world. So, so thank you so much. Uh, thank you again for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Leads to Scale, a podcast from Social Media Week. Leads to Scale is edited and produced by Al Manorino. For the latest news and insights, or to learn more information about how to get involved with future Social Media Week events, please visit socialmediaweek.org.